What is your purpose? I mean, what are you living for? What provides the vision and the shape and even the direction for your life? So I'll tell you what our God wants to do. He wants to connect your life's purpose with his global purposes. And he wants to do it in any new stage of life you find yourself. I love Brian and Olga's story that even with kids, I mean, usually we think kids are the pause button. It's like we'll push pause and then be productive once they're grown. Even in that season, the Lord is providing for them, equipping them to go. But more than that, he's using that season uniquely. Because when they go, they are able to model missions for their kids, able to encourage their children. So I wonder, wherever you find yourself, whatever season of life you find yourself in, how is God calling you in your unique season to connect your purpose with God's global purposes? So as we've seen through the book of Ephesians, um, we serve a great God that has a cosmic plan. He's uniting all things in heaven and on earth in Christ, and he's doing it through the church. And as we read in Ephesians, it's so high level, it'd be easy to think that Paul wrote it from uh, some, some corner office, right, with, with leather-bound books or whatever else. But remember, he's in prison. He's in prison because he's at the tip of the spear of gospel advance. I mean, Paul's doing it, connecting his purpose with God's global purposes. And not only that, this book is not just some theoretical, floaty, fuzzy musings about big thoughts. That's a lot of times how we feel about theology. It's just big and floaty and big thoughts, and Paul's thinking big thoughts, maybe we can think big thoughts. No, Paul's trying to do something in his preaching and in his praying. He's trying to do something in our lives, namely give us a vision of who God is and show us what God has done so that it captivates our hearts and gives us a vision for what he can do and he can do again. As you turn to Ephesians chapter 3, I'll be in verse 14 in just a second. I invite you to join me there. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 um, and following. I'll give you a little preview of what I think Paul is praying for. He is praying that we would see that God has done and wants to do to give us the spirit of power and the love of Christ. Power and love. That's what God is about, and that's what God wants to do in you and what he wants to do through you. Let's look here. Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to read verse 14 down to verse 21. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. We just close it up and head on home, right? So good, so good. And I love even in such a grand and sweeping prayer, Paul starts practical. See that in verse 14? He practically tells us how we pray, at least how he is praying. How is, how is Paul praying? For this reason, what does he do? 
He bows his knees. He bows his knees. Remember Paul's in prison, likely chained to a prison guard? I bet it's a unique experience. Paul starts bowing. The guy's like, oh, gosh, you know, down he goes again. It's like, Paul, let him be. Ephesians, I think it's fine. But in, 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 in the Scripture, we see a bunch of different postures, at least modeled in prayer. I'm not sure exactly prescribed, and I don't think there's one exact way to do it. We see a bunch of ways modeled. We see Solomon, whenever he's dedicating the temple, he stands. We see David, whenever he's praying about his future and his legacy, he sits before the Lord. We see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane that falls on his face, right? And what do we do today? We, uh, we close our eyes and we bow our heads. I'm going to tell you a little secret. I don't close my eyes. And I don't bow my head. So there, right? And it freaks my kids out, especially, probably because people, you know, at this church are probably telling them, like, close your eyes, bow your head. So it was whenever around the dinner table, especially, and I'm praying for them, they're like, Daddy's not closing his eyes. I'm like, who are you telling, telling on me, too? I'm Daddy. Like, you telling on Daddy to Daddy? That didn't work that way. Daddy's not closing his eyes. You know, but you've got to be careful, though. If you're an eye opener, you've got to be careful if you're praying with other eye openers. I was at the night of prayer and worship and just, you know, just praying in the spirit, right? Just in the spirit. And then Pastor Dave and I lock eyes across the room, and I'm like, whoa, you know, he's looking too. <laughs> just be mindful. But what's the point? What's the point of the standing and the, and the sitting and the kneeling and the, and the on your face and whatever else? What's the point? The point is that we are complex people. Jesus says that, you know, our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength, we've got a lot of parts to us. And the point is that we connect all of those parts in prayer so that if you're spiritually affected, you should be physically moved. Maybe you've been in a worship service and you feel that. Something's just happening and so your arm is just up, right? Or maybe both arms, right? Or maybe you're just so burdened um, for your child to come to know the Lord that you are on your knees at their bedside. Or maybe you've gotten some um, um, piece bit of news, some diagnosis, whatever else, from someone who's close to you, and you're overwhelmed, so you're just on your face. How the Spirit is moving in our hearts, if you put it that way, should play out how we're living our lives through our strength. But the inverse is also true, that you can use your strength, you can use your body, sometimes it jumpstarts your heart. I remember my um, father-in-law was a pastor, He'd always be up front right before he stepped on the stage and preached. I mean, every service, at some point, he'd be raising his hand. And I, I had thought that that's whenever, again, you raise it when the Spirit's moving, right? The seas, you're feeling it, so the hand's up. And I asked him one time, how do you feel it every single service? And he was like, you know what? There are some times I certainly don't. But whenever I hear a truth that God's people are singing and encouraging me with, the truth of who God is and what he's done, I raise my hand so that my spirit catches up. Amen. I know this should be true. And if I don't feel it, I'm using my body to try to jumpstart my heart to feel it. And I think prayer can be the same way. There's a book called The Common Rule. It's a guy who's writing a couple of habits, he says, formational habits in our age of distraction or something like that. Things you can do, habits you can do with your strength or your body to jumpstart your affections, your heart. And one of his is kneeling prayer three times a day. Morning midday, evening. I mean, people generally, we don't kneel anymore, right? Um, but what he does is by setting aside time to kneel, he knows he's trying to jumpstart his affections, his heart for the rest of the day. So that's how we pray. We're kind of moving on in. Let's, let's do it to when we pray. Again, maybe the, the morning, the midday, and the evening, that's a helpful um, um, bit. 
We also see, you know, 1 Thessalonians say pray without ceasing. Well, how does that work in the equation? I think it's kind of like Tim Keller talks about two types of prayer. You have kingdom prayer and communion prayers. Kingdom prayer is whenever you are doing work with God. Those are like your work boots, you know, the steel-toed kind. You're in somewhere, set aside time, doing work with God that he would move. Then you have communion prayers where you're walking with God. You got your walking shoes on. That's just during the day when things come up. Maybe it's a remembrance of somebody, a memory, or maybe you just see something that reminds you, or maybe something, again, calls your attention, and you're just spending time with the Father, communion. And I think to have both and is what makes the relationship go. We know this. That's, that's the same way with our relationship. Um, what, what, what do you try to do at least whenever the kids are home from school or you're home from work? You try to have your sit-down, your one-on-one, where you look in the eyes of your family, you catch up to see how the day was, you do work. But then there's times throughout the day, right, whenever you think about it, you send them a text or, or something, something funny reminds you, you want to share something with them. That's communion. That, that's relationship. And I think both feeds and fuels the other. We have some pillars in our day. Maybe it's in the morning, maybe it's the evening, maybe it's midday that grounds us in prayer. And then throughout the day, we pray without ceasing. But now we get, I guess, to the main point. What do we say? That's the how or the what question. What do we say when we pray? The Bible, the Bible gives us a surprising, maybe encouraging answer that we don't know how to pray. That's what Paul says. Paul's one of the baddest apostles. I mean, he writes some of the highest level, baddest theology books you've ever seen. You try to work through Romans, you're like, golly. And not only that, but in Romans chapter 8, one of the most you know, intense sections of that book, in verse 26, it says, we do not know how to pray as we ought. And maybe you felt that. Maybe you know there's a problem or a situation, a sin, a suffering, temptation, whatever else. It's so big, you just don't even know where to start. Or maybe you just kind of feel silly if you're honest. Whenever you're asked to pray, you try to pray, you're not sure if it's working. This whole individual monologue thing doesn't really feel like it fits. But we usually learn to cover up if we feel self-conscious in prayer. We usually learn to cover up by learning how to pray by listening to other people. What I mean is maybe you grew up in a high church tradition, and they're like, you want to learn how to pray? I'm going to give you a script, and you stick to that script. Here's what you pray before meals. You're like, got it, that's easy. Here's what you pray if you've sinned. Here's what you pray when you're going on vacation, whatever else. Here's your prayer. You're like, I'll just, fine, I'll just learn to pray by sticking to the script. But I think for most of us, we learn to pray just by listening. And somehow, we all find ourselves saying the same things. I didn't, I didn't realize this until my kids started praying back to me, right? We're at the dinner table. My eyes are open. I'm looking at them. No, we're, we're at the dinner table. I want to pray, Daddy. I'm like, go for it. And every time, they, they follow almost the same formula. God, thank you for this day. We pray we have a wonderful time. Bless the food in Jesus Christ's name. Every time. And when I heard it the first time, I didn't think much. Second time, third time, I'm like, wait a minute. And I started listening. We all say those things. Almost all of our prayers have, thank you for this wonderful time, right? We pray that we have a wonderful day. Bless the food. Amen. We all just find ourselves saying the same things. But we don't know that we don't know how to pray until we get around somebody who prays. You know, you ever been around somebody who's just doing work in prayer? And you're like, dang, you're doing something different than what I do. Your praying is different than my praying. That's how the disciples felt with Jesus. In Luke chapter 11, um, they, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. That's what prompts him in doing the Lord's prayer. He's teaching him how to pray. 
apparently something in Jesus' ministry of prayer moved them to ask him, Lord, teach us. They didn't ask him how to cast out demons. They didn't ask him how to, how to, how to teach. They didn't ask him how to preach any of those things. They said, teach me how to pray. He was doing something different. And I think that's how we feel with Paul. Reading this prayer, you're like, man, something is different than what I normally do. But Paul's not just trying to give us a script, though that could be helpful. Just as an aside, I mean, a helpful place to start is just to pray Scripture back to God. You can pray a psalm back to him or maybe even this prayer of Paul. That's so helpful. But Paul's not just giving us the script. He's trying to give us a vision. He's trying to show us who our God is, what he has done, and what he wants to do through us. Because prayer always starts with the who. It's always the who before the how. We got to know who we're praying to. If we're going to get our how we're praying or what we're saying right. So let me ask you, who is Paul praying to? Verse 14, what does it say? He's bowing his knees. He's bowing his knees before the Father. The who he is praying to is the Father. God is Father. I spent a whole sermon on that, but I'm not going to. It's okay. And not only is he a Father, but he's a specific type of Father. You see that? Pray, uh, bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So he's the one that sets the tone that provides the definition to all families. Not only that, Paul may be saying he's the one that sets the tone and provides a definition for all fathers. Because the word he uses there for family sounds very similar to the word he uses there for fathers. That means that God himself defines what it means to be father. Super important. This is what we call revelation. God tells us how it is. Because oftentimes the way we work is we work with projection. What I mean by that is we look around about our experience and we try to push that back or project that back up into God. So whenever I say that God is Father, you're probably thinking about your dad, your father. And you're thinking about who he was or who he wasn't, and then you're trying to push that or project that back up into God. I just have to say, Lord, help my children if they do that, right? Uh, one one uh, Sunday, and always on Sundays. Why, why is it that I always lose my temper on Sundays? In the car, going to, to church. <laughs> um, usually I'm like fun, silly dad in the car, right? Roll down the windows. Let's listen to fun music and sing and ha, ha, I was not fun, silly dad that day. And my four-year-old and seven-year-old, for whatever reason, didn't pick up on my social cues. And so they were there for silly dad. They were there for silly time. Ah, they're laughing. They're hitting each other. They're pounding on the windows, whatever else. And I'm telling you, I just snapped. And I didn't just snap in general. I snapped at them. I got on them. And not in a good way. Not in a good way. And then, you know, you go to service and the word's preached at you and people are praying and you're just convicted of sin. I'm like, oh, here we go. I can at least repent to my children, right? So I'm in the car on the way back. I'm like, guys, I'm sorry. I'm just sorry that I don't love you like God loves you. I'm sorry that I'm impatient. Our God's not impatient with us. I'm sorry that I'm unpredictable. God is not unpredictable. He's faithful. I'm sorry. I try to love you like, and on the front of the back seat, my daughter goes, it's okay, Daddy. You try. <laughs> God is the Father. He does not try. He sets the tone. He provides the definition. And he shows us his love, not just in floaty ways, but specifically through his son, Jesus Christ. Because at the cross of Christ, the fatherhood of God is defined. That when we see Jesus lay down his life, we know that our God is 
self-giving love. That's what John means, I think. In 1 John, when he says God is love, we know God is love when we look to his beloved son, Jesus. And we know that God is faithful, right? I think that's what Paul's saying in in chapter 1 when he's talking about the, the predestined language. You are predestined for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. I think what Paul's saying is this is what he's been up to all the time. He has not changed. That from the beginning, he has, and now he is, grabbing you with his love and giving you his spirit so that you can be in his son, if you want to put it that way. Because that's what the spirit does. The spirit takes what is Christ and makes it ours. Just remember Paul's whole, we don't know how to pray section of Romans. What's the answer? What's the answer, Paul, if we don't know how to pray? Is there any hope for us? Yes, there is. Look at chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 15. It'll be up on the screen. Romans 8, 15. What does he say? He says that you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. I'll ask you a Bible question. Who cries out to God as Abba, Father? Jesus. Remember that in the garden? In his time of greatest need? Whenever he is laying down his life in love, he cries out to God as his Abba, Father? Well, that's how prayer works. Why? Because when we have faith in Jesus, God's Spirit unites us to Christ so that we pray to his Father as our Father. Because I think how we pray shows who we think God is. Because most of us found ourselves on some spectrum of being religious, right? We got the far end of super formal. So maybe you say like thee and thou and thine and use language in prayer you wouldn't use any other place in life. Or maybe you find yourself on the other end of some sort of feely prayer where it's daddy, God, or whatever else. Neither of those extremes seem to hit home. Neither of them seem to be authentic. They don't fit about who we know God is or really who we know ourselves to be. Because Jesus and Paul is teaching us that in prayer, we move from the religious to the real. This is how you really talk, or should be, about your real problems. And you're talking to a real father. That's Paul's answer. That when we find ourselves in our own Gethsemane, a time of trial or temptation or sin or suffering, whatever else. And when we don't even know where to start, we can pray to our Father in His Spirit. And that love will bear us through and bring life. This Father, as we see, is one who, according to the riches of His glory, It's like, yeah, he's got it all, baby, according to the riches of his glory. It's like, what do we want this God who is full of abundance and riches? What do we want him to give us? Or what does he want to give us? Well, as I said, I think he wants to give us two things, power and love. Maybe more specifically, he wants to give us his spirit of power in resurrection and the love of Christ in reconciliation. Let's look at this, verse 16. According to the riches of his glory... He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit 
in your inner being. Whenever we talk about God's power, Christians get, can get a little goofy. Uh, maybe you've been around church long enough where people talk about having God-sized goals, right, or dreams. Somehow we always connect it back to offering. It's like, all right, this mission's offering this year. We want to have a God-sized goal. We're going to take last year's total and we're going to add 30%. You're like, 30%? god size? Why not like 30 million percent? Or like 30 quadrillion percent? Or maybe, you know, your friends at the college admission season, they're like, I just want to have a God-sized dream. I want to get into a top-tier prestigious university. It's like, get in? That's a god size. Why don't you try to create a university out of the dust of the earth? That's god size. But this is not a floaty type of genie power. We hear power, we think of Aladdin, right? Phenomenal cosmic power. That's right. This is defined power. And it's defined by Jesus Christ. So that what God can do, he has done in Christ. Look at that at chapter 1. As Pastor Nate preached through Ephesians chapter 1, the prayer there, what does he say in verse 19 and 20? Paul in chapter 1 is praying that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. This is not a floaty power to accomplish our story. It's like, all right, genie God, make me a prince. No, this God is giving us the power of his spirit to accomplish his story. And his story is one of resurrection power. And that's good news for us, isn't it? Because we need resurrection. I'm not sure if we are confident, if we're honest to ourselves, I'm not sure if we are confident that people can really change. People who are close to us but far from God, we think they're really too far from God. Or maybe they're too set in their ways, or maybe they're too skeptical, and they'll always be wandering. I think we're not sure if people can really change, because we're not sure if we really change. Even if we're Christians, we just at the point in life, we're just going to make peace with whatever sin struggle that is. You know what I'm talking about. The one that you keep going back to, and you're like, all right, Lord, I'll just try to live my next six days of the week, you know, to make up for that. It's just going to be what I do. Maybe it's some relationship. You just learn to settle in your marriage. It's just always going to be distant or tense. Maybe it's with your kids. It's like, you know what? I just am never going to have a great connection with my children. Or maybe it's with your parents. It's like my relationship with my parents will just always be weird and strained. Sure, we get excited after a sermon, right? We all get excited. We get in our cars, we go home. And that excitement to change maybe lasts about, I don't know, a day, 24 hours, you think? Because it, this change often never works deeper than skin deep. It never gets to the heart of who we are. It never gets to change us from the inside out. I'm reminded of a story I read as a kid. It's a series of books, Sideways Stories from Wayside School. Um, and there's one in particular about a, this class from a kid's right where one day a new kid comes to class. And if everybody's honest with themselves, he seemed a little off. A little strange, sat by himself, didn't talk to anybody, and he wore just this huge overcoat. It was raining outside, it's not a problem. But the next day, whenever the sun was shining, he still was distant and strange and weird and kind of mean and still in his overcoat. The teacher's like, hey, you can set up your coat, you know, over there. 
And whenever anybody talked about, reached out, whatever else was code, he like lashed out. Couldn't figure it out. Until finally, day after day after day, where he kept being distant and strange and kind of mean, the teacher had enough. He's like, all right, give me that coat, right? <laughs> took it off. There's one, another one underneath it. She took that one off. And there's another one, and another one, and another one, and another one. And she's just piling these coats, right, in the corner of the classroom, trying to get to the bottom of it all. And at the bottom of it all, this new kid, Sammy, was a sewer rat. There's a reason why his circumstances were the way it was. Because underneath all of it, he was a rat. And I think what happens in prayer is so often we're praying for change. God change this or change that, whatever else. But we're praying for change for our circumstances. Maybe it's a, we think it's the boss's fault. I think it's your job's fault. I think it's your kid's fault. I don't know. Your spouse's fault. But we don't realize that God doesn't want to change the circumstances. He wants to change us. Or as Paul puts it, he wants to change us, strengthen us with power. Where? In our inner being at the sewer rat level. He wants to change you there from the inside out. Not just take off a jacket, but to change you who you really are. Resurrection power to the very core. Remember, this is the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. No one is too far gone. No one is too set in their ways, and no sin is too deep. This is the spirit of resurrection power. But it's interesting. You don't have a resurrection without dying. Paul Miller is a pastor. He wrote a book called The Praying Church. And in it, he says that often we think the formula for prayer goes something like this. We pray, the Spirit comes and brings us power. It's kind of like the genie God to accomplish our dreams, right? We think that we pray, the Spirit comes and brings us power. But what he says is when the Spirit comes, he brings not only the presence of Christ, he's truly with us, but he brings the pattern of Christ so that our lives are shaped to look like his. What does he mean by that? He means that when we pray, like Jesus, we lay down our lives so that like Jesus, God will raise them back up again. Do you remember when was Jesus' Abba prayer? The Garden of Gethsemane? What, he do, what did he do in his prey? He walked on the path of his dying because he knew that God would raise him up again. And I think we know this. Uh, let's, let's, let's take your... Uh, you know, your relationship with your spouse, for example. For example. Maybe it's a tiff, maybe it's a blow-up, maybe it's just a pattern of whatever else. And if you're honest, you don't really want to pray, maybe about it yourself personally, but especially not with them, because you know that at the point you start praying, you're going to have to start dying. You know that to take that step across the room is actually a step of repentance. And you know to get on your knees, either individually or together, you might actually have to change. Not them and their circumstances, not you and your circumstances, but like you in your inner being. Or it could be the same again at your workplace or with your kids. It could be at your future, your finances, your relationships, whatever. Like Jesus, in our prayer, we lay our lives down, knowing God that will lift us up in due time with resurrection power. But Paul not only prays for power, 
He also prays for love. Did you see that? But specifically the love of Christ. Let's say in verse 17, we're strengthened with power that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You know, whenever we talk about Christ in our hearts, whatever else, we, we think about our, us having like a little heart locket. You ever, have those, you ever seen those little necklaces, right? You can like open up and put a picture inside. It's like we want to open up our little individual interior heart lockets and have Jesus like pour chicken noodle soup right into our souls, right? We want the warm, fuzzy feelings, and we want it inside of us and for us. Like pour it in, and then we close our heart locket, and we go about our day. This is neither internal nor is it individual. Let me give you all the Southern translation. Paul is praying that Christ may dwell in y'all's hearts. Y'all's. What's it say in verse 18? That y'all, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints. This is all y'all. That's how Paul's praying here. Because love is a team sport. Any number of sports I try to follow gets harder with kids. But uh, one's baseball. In the last 20 years or so, uh, this wave of analytics has taken over the game. And for good or worse, I don't care. But the point of analytics is that they can use technology to analyze almost every individual facet of the game. Not only to analyze it, but hopefully to pick it apart and even to project future performance. So they use it in scouting. So they can look at a batter, take it for instance, and they can track and analyze this batter's bat speed, the exit velocity of the baseball, the launch angle he uses, and they can decide whether or not this player can be the next and great player or whatever else, make it the lead. It was fascinating. I was reading a story how one guy, one dude, unknown dude, which is kind of strange because usually they know about everybody, one unknown dude sent a video of him batting to a professional organization, and they were blown away because he had provided the real-time stats on the screen of those things that everybody's looking for. And man, his stat range was exactly where he needed to be and even above it. And so the executives, they got in a plane, they went to his house, right? And they sat down with him to see if he could be the next great whatever. The only problem is that he had never actually played baseball. He had only been by himself in a batting cage getting his personal statistics down, but had never played the game. Spoiler alert, I don't think he made it. And I think that's what we can do in our Christian lives. That we can take us and Jesus, right, go to the batting cage, try to get our personal statistics down. But if it's just us and Jesus, we have never actually played the game. Because the game is love. Not just love in little heart lockets. Love for all y'all. Love in the church where God is taking what is different and uniting it together. Remember in Ephesians 2, the love of Christ, what did it do? It tore down the dividing walls of hostility and united us together in one new man. But God is displaying the manifold wisdom through this church. That's, that's Ephesians 3. Manifold wisdom, it's like different, it's diverse, it's, it's manifold. It's, it's, it's like a stained glass window. And he's displaying all that differences in the glory of it through the unity of the church. I hear it more times than I want to, so I'm assuming you do, that our nation is more divided and polarized than ever and blah blah blue And that probably is true. That probably is true in some places. Maybe that's true in a lot of places. Maybe in all places. I don't know. But I'll tell you where it's not true. 
it's not true in my community group. Because in my community group, we got a man bun, a power lifter, a former D1 athlete, a Chick-fil-A operator, an expat, and a pastor, all in one breakout group. And that's just the guys. We come from all over. We've been through all different things, and we are going through all different things. And no, our group is not always candy canes and sunshine. Yeah, we got crazy schedules and crazy families. Yeah, we're all dealing with, at some level, social anxiety and selfishness. Sure, there are little tiffs and people are off or whatever else, but it's the discipline of community where God shows us the love of Christ. It's a discipline. You got to make a choice to be there. And not only to be there, but to be there when you be there, if you know what I mean. Because when you begin to live out love, the love of Christ dwells in y'all's heart. And, what does he say in verse 17? We are rooted and grounded in love. Rooted and grounded in love. Let's just do a mental exercise. Can you think back? Imagine with me, if you will. Can you think back to a, a time in your life when you are the closest to God? I bet that in that season, when you were closest to God, you were also closest to Christian community. The inverse is also the truth. Can you think back to a season when you were felt farthest or were farthest from God? I bet that at that time you were also farthest from Christian community. It is hard to doubt God's love when you are rooted and grounded in community. Rooted, that's like tree language, right? Think about Psalm 1. But the blessed man who is like a tree planted by streams of water. There's any number of reasons to have a rootless life. Maybe it's your kids, your job, your work, your parents, yourself. I don't know. At every stage, we've got reasons to be rootless. But what does God do? He roots us in Christ as a community. What about the grounded language? Grounded reminds us of a temple. Right? Because in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's talking about how we are a household that's being made into a house. We are a family that is so rooted and grounded, it's like we're a building. This family is stable, stuck together, grounded, what? He says, on Christ the cornerstone, on the foundation of the, the, the prophets and the apostles, that's God's word, together we are grounded, like a temple. So I just want to say, if you are tired of being rootless, if you are tired of being um, listless, Come to Christ through his word and with his people and be rooted like a tree and grounded like a temple. But that temple language, grounded there, the temple's never just for us, whoever the us is. It's never just for individuals to feel the presence of Christ in our little heart lockets. It's never just for the church to, to enjoy the, the presence of Christ together. And really that temple language is um, to go outward right in, in, in verse 19 we're supposed to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God how are you supposed to know something that surpasses knowledge how are you supposed to experience something that is so spiritually profound you do it when you put skin on it 
You know the love of God that surpasses knowledge when you know that love through God's people. And because again, there, there's a difference between the fullness of God's presence and God's like omnipresence. If you put it that way. You ever wondered why we pray for God to be here, wherever here is, whenever God's everywhere? You ever wondered that? Like, God, be here. It's like, he is here. Why are we doing that? Well, think about, okay, in your work, if you are cursed in work to work with Microsoft Excel, let's just say you're by yourself staring at your screen doing some Excel spreadsheet, right? God is there, truly, with you and Microsoft. But what's the difference whenever you are with God's people in this, and he is there? Think about a night of prayer and worship we've had. What's the difference between you and your, your computer screen and Microsoft Excel and our night of prayer and worship? The difference is God's people come together expecting God to move, so he brings his spirit of power, bring dead things to life. He brings his reconciling love, uniting what is different together, and he brings the fullness of his glory. But again, not just for us. Because the temple, right, was supposed to be a light to the nations. And no, not just for the church. The church is supposed to be a city set on a hill. That we are supposed to take God's fullness, his abundant, overflowing love, in ourselves overflow. God is inviting us to something far beyond our little vision of what we want. You know, what we want is often what we pray for your wish list. And listen, it's a good thing. It's a good thing that we pray for our family to be safe and successful and healthy and happy. Sure, it's great that we pray for our marriages to be nice and for us to get what we want or whatever. And yeah, school, I get it. You want to make good grades. You want to win ball games. You want to have friends. And yes, I guess we want our church to get bigger and better and whatever. But what does Paul say in verse 20? He says, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. See how that's different? God's taken our little desires and he's blowing up that box and giving us a vision, a vision of who he is and a vision of what he has done. And he is calling us to look backward and to dream forward. Because I think praying and dreaming are connected. That when we see what God has done and we catch that vision, then our prayer lives and our lives are changed. What shapes our lives, the vision that provides direction, is changed. Our purpose then begins to become connected to God's purpose. And we begin to pray, Lord, do it again. In the 40s, 1940s, right, there's a group of college students, a bunch of kids. They want to take a, a fun uh, a tour, right, a class trip, and they went to uh, England. And if you've been to England, maybe you have or maybe you haven't, but they have their Christian heritage tours. These are tours throughout the city and the surrounding area of London, whatever else, where you can see, like, relics of revival. <laughs> it's like, look how God moved, and now we have this building or whatever. But one of the last stops of the tour in London was the house of John Wesley. You may have heard that name or you may have it, it doesn't matter. But just know that John Wesley was one of the people that in his generation, God used to create a movement of his 
power and love and change the world. And in Wesley's house, the tour kind of culminates in his bedroom. And they stepped in the room, and the tour guide pointed to his bed and said, do you notice beside his bed those two spots on the floor, the two marks in the carpet? He said, those are still there from all the long hours Wesley spent on his knees in prayer. Remember, this is his college-aged home. Wesley's just a college kid who caught a vision for God and spent so much time praying for a revival to break out that he broke in the floor. Well, the tour concludes and get all the students and herd them back to the bus. And the leader noticed that one of them's missing. Where is he, right? You go back through the house and trying to find him, calling his name. And when the leader walks into Wesley's bedroom, he finds him. He finds him with his knees on those spots in the floor, praying. As he walks up behind him to put his hand on him, let him know it's time to go, he hears that student praying, Lord, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. That student was Billy Graham. And the Lord did it again. When you hear that name, we think of stadiums filled with thousands of people. We think of an international ministry. We think of an evangelist the worldwide over. But remember, at that season, Billy Graham was just a college student, just an old boy from North Carolina. But he caught a vision of who God is, of what God has done. And he said, Lord, do it again. So I wonder, if this is who our God is, this is what our God loves to do, why can he not do it at your school, at your program, at your office, in your neighborhood, in your apartment complex, in your family, in your house, in our church, in this city? Because when God's people, when we come together expecting him to move, He brings his spirit of power. He brings the love of Christ, and he does it again. Let's pray together. Our Father, if we're honest, we're tired of our small prayers. We're tired of living our blah routines, just trying to survive or whatever else. Lord, we want a vision. Open our eyes to see who you are and what you do. And Lord, grab hold of our hearts with the truth that you want to do it in Christ and through your church. Lord, we've seen you move. We pray you do it again, that you do it in us and you do it through us. We pray in Christ's name, amen.